Well done. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, gathered tonight at the tasting room of the Great Lakes Brewing Company. This is our monthly series. It's called Constitution Ale, and it's called Constitution Ale because we talk about the Constitution in a public house. Um, tonight, we're talking about the Fifth Amendment. Now, the Fifth Amendment um, has a, a few different clauses, as most of these amendments do. Um, clauses have to do with, uh, with the right to a grand jury, uh, the, the right to avoid double jeopardy, the right to avoid self-incrimination, and um, something about private property and an appropriate reimbursement. We're probably going to skip the last one, but the first three are pretty interesting. Let me tell you who we've got with us uh, today. Down at the end of the table, Louis Chaitin is a partner at Jones Day. He's also, full disclosure, a member of the City Club Board of Directors, um, and he recently argued a case before the Supreme Court of the United States, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit. Um, next to him is Anna Wood. She's, uh, Woods. She's an assistant prosecuting attorney for Cuyahoga County. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, Aisha Bell Hard Hardway is next to her. She teaches uh, at the Case Western Reserve University School of Law, where she's an assistant professor. Great to have you here. Thank you. And Ian Friedman is sitting right next to me. He is, uh, he is the founder of Friedman and Nemechek. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, the um, one of the really kind of highly relevant, highly timely things going on here is the, a case that was argued in this last session of the Supreme Court, um, uh, Gamble versus the United States. And uh, Louis Chaitin, you represented Terrence Gamble. So um, tell us, give us the, the background that we need in order to understand why this case is uh, potentially so, um, so uh, uh, upending of our, of our world order. Sure, if you will. Sure, thanks, <laughs> thanks Dan, and uh, thanks for having me here. Um, I feel a little bit like uh, the third wheel or maybe the fifth wheel as the case may be because um, originally this was a program on the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment, and then Dan had heard about my argument and said, well, that's in the Fifth Amendment too. And so it's true. <laughs> now we are covering the double jeopardy clause as well. Um, and that, as he mentioned, I'm, um, counsel for Mr. Gamble in a Supreme Court case called Gamble versus United States. It involves a double jeopardy clause, in particular it involves something called the separate sovereigns exception or dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause. And the issue is this, the double jeopardy clause means the government can't try you twice for the same offense. But there's an exception that goes, that was first suggested about 170 years ago. Um, it has been around for a long time called the separate sovereigns exception or the dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause. And that exception says that even though you can only be tried um, once for a crime by the, by the government, that if one time it's by the state government and one time it's by the federal government, it's perfectly fine even if it's the same offense. And the theory behind it is that they're separate sovereigns. In this country, sovereignty um, which usually vests in other countries, typically vests in one government, is divided between the states and the federal government. And so it's kind of like you're being tried by different jurisdictions, different governments, different sovereigns, and so it shouldn't be treated as the same offense. So that's the rule. Um, it's been around for a long time. It was first suggested 170 years ago. It was the Supreme Court um, uh, enshrined it in a holding for the first time in 1922, so it's a really old precedent. And the interesting thing about it is that in 2016, uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote an opinion um, in a case called Puerto Rico versus Sanchez Valle, where she said, 
we should really revisit this doctrine. It, even though it's old, it's really unfair. And guess who joined that opinion? Justice Thomas. So strange bedfellows, they're not usually writing joint opinions together, and he also said we should revisit this, kind of for different reasons. I think Justice Ginsburg's coming at it from a pro-criminal defense rights perspective, and Justice Thomas is coming at it from the perspective of an originalist. So there was then a scramble to find the case that was going to be the one where the court revisited this issue, and it happened to be um, a case that we found at Jones Day, and um, so we wrote a cert petition, the court granted, and I argued it on uh, December 6th. A decision will be forthcoming probably in June. And the, I can summarize the let's, facts and... Well, let's hold off on that for just a second. I mean, I think this, this notion or the, the, the fact that, um, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Clarence Thomas are joining together in an opinion, I just want us to absorb that for a moment. Um, and Aisha Bell Hardaway, when, they, when, that, um, when that opinion uh, was issued, uh, what did you think of it? What did you think of the, of the fact that these two were coming together and, and that from, a, from the perspective of somebody who teaches constitutional law, and instructs the next generation of lawyers. I mean, what were you, what, what were you thinking about? So my original thought, quite honestly, more closer is, to the microphone, sorry. if you would. That's okay. My original thought, quite honestly, is you'll take your gifts where you find them, um, and it's not that uncommon for exactly why Lewis said, right, or or, or as surprising because of um, the fact that Justice Thomas is an originalist. If you think about the questions or the concerns around double jeopardy and how you can have a state government and a federal government trying the same individual for exactly the same conduct, you automatically think, well, this is what the Constitution precludes. Um, and then for Justice Ginsburg to be concerned about the implication, I mean, he, Lewis didn't talk about Mr. Gamble, but the crime that he's accused of is really, um, in a lot of ways, I'll say it, a victimless, everyday, run-of-the-mill crime um, or that he's, he pled guilty to and then was convicted of. Um, and it isn't kind of this um, high-stakes offense that you might think all of this hoopla uh, would create. Um, and so, so I could see, I guess, why both Thomas and um, Ginsburg might have some, some interest in it. Louis Jaden, after that, you better explain the case. Okay, so it's... Uh, Mr. Gamble was, had previously been convicted of a felony. Um, as a felon under both state and federal law, you're not allowed to possess a firearm. He was driving along in Alabama, got pulled over for having a broken taillight. They found a handgun in his car. Um, he pled guilty to being a felon in possession in Alabama. The Alabama state courts gave him one year in prison. The federal government apparently was not satisfied with that. They charged him with the same offense, being a felon in possession under federal law, and sentenced him to 46 months in prison. 46 months. Um, I feel like that 46 months. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've heard that somewhere. Yeah. Um, Anna Woods, uh, as, a, as a, uh, an assistant prosecuting attorney, um, this seems like the sort of case that, it, had it come through Cuyahoga County, um, you would have uh, you would have sort of been satisfied with the with the guilty verdict and moved on, and the federal law enforcement might not have even noticed it. It's up to each federal agency whether or not they want to accept a case. We would have handled ours and been done. But this is a, I mean it's not an uncommon case. No, this is a routine run of the mill case that I have a couple on my docket right now. And are the federal law enforcement officials in Cleveland, Ohio, upset about them or planning on 
prosecuting them as well? None that I'm aware of. All right. So Ian Friedman, as a, as a defense attorney, how do you see the, how do you see all of this and how do you see the stakes? Well, I'd like to see uh, double jeopardy, of course, gone. It's funny, I have a client in my office uh, today uh, who was convicted, served two years for environmental crimes uh, at the state level. And did his times home, then ends up coming to me and saying, now the feds want to prosecute me for this. So we worked out uh, the, the plea agreement. Everything's done, everything's signed. But then he called me after your case, Lewis, and told me to hold it back because he's hoping uh, that the double jeopardy is gone so that he can no longer be prosecuted for that offense. It's an interesting thing. As a criminal defense lawyer, I hear it all the time. I'm in prosecutor's offices, and they say, well, you know, we could plea it here. And I said, but is it going federal? And he said, well, we don't know. We're federal going to state, we don't know. And these are the things that we have to think about every day because what you say in the state court, can it now be used against you to make a federal case for you? So when we're thinking of a case, we're thinking about it in a couple different venues. So yeah. it's, uh, it's an interesting case for us. I, as, a, as somebody who's not a practicing lawyer, I'm at a huge disadvantage at this table, but, um, but I also just look at this and I, I can't quite believe that when our Constitution was being written and when the, the Bill of Rights was being drafted, that the founders imagined that even though we're writing here, you can't be tried twice for the same crime, it would be okay to be tried twice for the same crime. Louis Chaitin. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, and that, is, that was uh, a big focus of the briefing and the arguments in the case because there's this sense in, in this country we have something called federalism and that's the idea that the power is divided between the federal and the state governments and the point of doing that was to preserve liberty not to find new ways to impinge upon liberty and so that's one of the interesting things about this case is that something that was supposed to be liberty enhancing is being used to give the government two shots at, uh, at, at a conviction where they different governments the though. one yeah right yeah yeah technically different governments is the theory so uh, what did you argue Besides what, we, what you just said, I mean, what else, like, what was the, like, so your so most the, compelling point? You know, so the, it was an 80-minute argument. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, so I'll give you, like, 80 and, and seconds. And by the way, it could have been, like, 80 hours, honestly, given the, uh, it, there's the, the, the argument was heavily focused on historical issues because the, the double jeopardy clause was, was designed to mean what it meant, what the rule meant at English common law at the time of the founding. So whether you're originalist or not, or whether you think the Constitution should be interpreted the way it was at the founding, it's well established. Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote that the Fifth Amendment means what it meant at the time of the founding. It was just adopting the English common law rule of double jeopardy. So there's this whole historical element to the case that was um, took up a lot of the briefing, a lot of the argument, and then there was the federalism element, and then there was um, a lot of uh, discussing just the, the plain unfairness of it, and then one of the big issues in the case, and I think it's really topical, is the, uh, is the issue of what stare decisis. So it's the, the principle that the court, even if they think its prior precedents are wrong, should adhere to them for the sake of the stability of the court. And stare decisis is a big issue with the court right now, and not for reasons, I think, involving the dual sovereignty exception to the double jeopardy clause, clause, but for reasons um, involving cases beginning with R and W, and um, <laughs> uh, it's, it, and, and so the lurking beneath this, all, this whole thing was this, how is the court going to approach stare decisis? I think there's some more liberal members of the court who are maybe um, a little nervous about 
um, the current membership of the court and what it me might mean for overturning precedent. So that is another issue lurking in this case. So you, what I think you're saying is that as much as Ruth Bader Ginsburg might side with you in this, she also might be afraid to upend precedent because of its implications for Roe v. Wade. I think that's one of the concerns that all of the justices are struggling with is how, what, what is their approach going to be to, to stare decisis, to adhering to precedent. I can tell you, I mean, who knows how any justice is going to come out on this case, but if you listen to the oral argument, um, there's one justice on the liberal side of the court who was giving me quite a hard time. Who was that? <laughs> that was Justice Kagan. Uh -huh. um, and her issue was stare decisis, very much so. Uh -huh. um, and, I mean, she wasn't alone. Justice Alito was giving me a hard time, too. Yeah. Um, but uh, We should have another was, session yeah, to yeah, find just, out so what's Justice that Kagan like. Was, but Justice <laughs> Kagan was very much coming at it from the issue of stare decisis. So it was one of the interesting issues um, lurking sort of beneath the surface. Another interesting issue that was raised, though, also had to do with um, how are you going to work this? Like, how does it, how, how is, if, if they decide in your favor, then what happens to all of these cases that are current and investigations that are currently pending, some that might involve um, somebody named Paul Manafort, or, um, or just you know then or future cases where like who gets to charge? Is it the first person to the court, or is it the first or or you know how does it work? But Anna Woods, you were saying earlier that typically when the federal law enforcement comes to comes to you or the U.S. attorney comes to your office and says, hey, we'd like to take this case. You're like, that's great. I don't need it. <laughs> that is, we are a very busy court here in Cuyahoga County, probably one of the largest in the state. So if the federal government wants to come take all my cases, there they go. <laughs> yeah, and there's just as many more tomorrow. Just as many tomorrow. Yeah. Aisha Bell Hardaway, um, one of the questions that I have about this from, again, from purely a lay perspective is how is it possible that there hasn't been a case like Gamble um, to this point? That has it, how is it possible that this separate sovereigns thing has been upheld for so long? Well, I, I think that goes to, sorry, here I go. I think that goes to kind of the conspiracy concerns um, that Lewis has had to deal with in some respects because for a long time, petitioners, I'm sure, or, or defendants have appealed their convictions and have gotten nowhere. And now all of a sudden, with the Puerto Rico case, it's ripe uh, for the picking. Um, but there is, I think, um, an issue of fundamental fairness uh, that goes to the heart of this issue. If you're talking about the same crime um, with the exact same elements, with the same fact pattern, um, for you to be tried both at the state level and then um, at the federal level. Um, so, so the fact that, number one, um, defendants will appeal it and have over time, that's not new. Um, but Lewis and I were talking a little bit earlier, there are, unlike, although Ohio doesn't have this, there are a lot of jurisdictions where states will say, well, if the feds have the case, then we aren't going to pursue charges. Um, and that's a part of their state law. Uh, the fact that it's not all of the United States, only a portion of the United States that have that, um, um, those states that have that, that law, I think impacts what you've seen and in terms of what's been able to percolate to the surface, right? So a lot of states won't have defendants who are faced with what Mr. Gamble um, has been faced. And then from my years, uh, long, 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 long time ago as a prosecutor, it used to be that if the, if the state tried a case, then the feds weren't going to touch it. Um, and now here recently, at least in Cuyahoga County, you have seen that not be the case 
police anymore, um, especially with the gang activity. Um, the feds are now picking up a lot of gang cases, even though they've been tried at the state level too. Um, and so maybe it's a new day and maybe the conspiracy question is worth exploring. So the, the conspiracy, just to kind of unpack that a little yeah. bit, um, argues that, uh, and if you go, you can just go onto Twitter if you're interested to see all of these people taking aim at Lewis Chaitin and Jones Day. Um, but argues that it's because of the, these sort of various connections and, and a certain amicus brief that, um, that came through uh, in the middle of the case that, um, that uh, this is all a setup so that uh, our president can pardon people, basically. Right, and Justice Kavanaugh is a part of it too. Yeah, so the, the, the day, be I think it was the day before argument, the front page of the Washington Post had an article saying that this case should be called um, Manafort versus Mueller um, and suggesting that this was really all about, the biggest issue in this case was whether the president could pardon someone for a federal crime and thereby preclude state prosecution. And the particular person everyone had in mind was Manafort. The Atlantic read an article saying, Wow, isn't it weird that uh, uh, um, that there are all these amicus briefs from people who are conservative who are arguing that maybe overcriminalization of federal law is a big issue, um, and so this all got pieced together into this idea that somehow the case is about presidential pardons when it really has almost nothing to do with presidential pardons. It, th that's an issue that, by the way, did not come up at oral argument at all. There's not a single question about presidential pardons. Well, that's pardons. part of the conspiracy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and by the way, and, and so, and in on the conspiracy were Justice Ginsburg and Justice Thomas back in 2016 before yeah. Trump was even elected president. So um, they were really prescient members it's the of, long the, game. of the conspiracy. It's all about the long game. Um, Aisha. So I just want to say there, there, so that is absolutely one piece of it, but there is kind of this erosion or, or question as to whether over the history of time, maybe starting with the, the Puerto Rico case, is there some disconnect around how um, the separate sovereignty doctrine is applied and is there an opportunity for us to think about the implications of not right having separate sovereignty docket, uh, doctrine in other instances, namely civil rights law, right, namely um, the Indian tribal issues um, and, and their courts. And so I, I think not only are there concerns about what would happen with Roe versus Wade or Manaverse, uh, Manafort and Trump, but if we overrule, right, double jeopardy entirely, what does that do then to the Fed's ability to prosecute on civil rights cases uh, where states aren't willing to or um, pursue more uh, serious uh, sentences uh, for Indian um, um, domestic violence and rape crimes. So, so I think that's kind of the more of a bigger picture of what's at play here, sorry. No, that's fantastic. Um, I'm, I want to switch gears. I know we're going to get more questions about Gamble in the second half of the program when we get to questions from the audience. I want to move to self-incrimination, the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment. Um, Ian Friedman, you're a defense attorney, and um, it always strikes me that when somebody says, I plead the Fifth, that they have something to hide. So it's never easy to take the Fifth, because I would venture to say that everyone here, if I had someone standing up here in front and said he's going to be taking the fifth, everyone here would think that he's hiding something. He's guilty. Uh, he did something. And so he's using it as a shield. And that's kind of the starting point for the defense lawyer uh, in just about all aspects of our profession, whether uh, we're making a statement or no comment in the paper uh, to 
you know, whether someone's going to testify in court. That's one of the things that we really have to deal with uh, when selecting a jury because they have an expectation that only guilty people don't talk. And so I started looking for statements that kind of captured uh, what we as defense lawyers face every day, the, the mentality, and it, can, it comes from our president back in 2016 uh, when he was talking, going back and forth with the Hillary Clinton thing. And he said, look, if you're innocent, uh, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Only the mob takes the Fifth Amendment. And that's pretty much what people think, not necessarily the mob, but you must have someone guilty. And what I feel our job is, is to educate the people who are hearing that. Uh, whether it's the trier of fact, whether it's the court, whoever it is, whether it's the, the court of public opinion, we have to uh, educate as to the other meanings of the fifth and, and let them know that the Supreme Court has made clear that it's not just for the guilty, but it's also to protect the innocent. And just in the last month alone, and we were talking about mm -hmm. this before I started, run into several occasions where we had to take the fifth and it wasn't because the client was guilty. So, uh, you know, last week I spent the week in Los Angeles during civil depositions uh, in what could become uh, a corruption matter, and not because my client was guilty, but he was a third-party witness. But he had to take the fifth because we didn't know what everyone else was saying. And you didn't want to get him, uh, you know, making statements that were bad uh, for his company. Uh, we had a gentleman here who was questioned. He was called by the FBI in Akron recently for uh, they were questioning whether or not there was uh, theft and contracts between him and the Ukrainian government. So he went in, the FBI said, do you do work with this company? Have you done contracts with this company? And the answer was no. You sure you didn't do this? You sure you didn't make this money? And on and on and on. And he kept saying no, no, no. And he really firmly believed that. He then got a call a couple days later by the FBI and they said, well, we'd like to talk to you again. So that's when he called. And I went and I spoke with them. And they said, look, we have the documents, we have the paperwork, clearly his company was doing business, clearly he did these contracts. So we went, we looked for it, and we found out, yeah, his company did. He didn't know, because it had been other employees that were doing it. He just had no idea. And so the point of the story is, he had violated, in the FBI's mind, uh, so the United States Code, we call it a 1001 violation, or a 1001 violation, it's a, it's a felony. If you all remember from the public corruption cases years ago, a lot of the judges got convicted, not for the underlying conduct, but for lying to the FBI. And we see a lot of innocent people make statements they don't know, or they're confused, or it's just contrary to other information that may not be accurate, and they find themselves needing a criminal and defense. In that, in that case, you can't really prove that you weren't lying if you just didn't know. You can't prove that you didn't know something after you then find out, the, find out the truth and you're like, oh, but I really didn't know, I swear. Right, and it, yeah. well, it's certainly difficult. And yeah. even if you win, you've spent years and, and your money and it's taken from your life. The fifth is there to protect the innocent. It's the criminal defense lawyer's job to make that clear to anyone who's hearing it. Anna Woods is a prosecuting attorney. Do you ever exploit the popular understanding of the fifth to, um, no, 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 you're shaking my, no. you're shaking your head. I can see, I can see that coming out. <laughs> One of the things, especially when we go to trial, is that I make sure that a jury understands they may never hear from the defense attorney or the defendant himself that I have the burden because that's my job is to present the evidence. So I often liken it to taking a different side. I pretend that I take two jurors and I ask who's got kids, who's got young kids, and say, would it ever fly in your house if Billy says, 
I'm not going to tell you, Mom, what happened because I have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. And everybody goes, of course Billy would tell me what happened. I'm his mom. And I said, well, that's exactly what's going to happen here. He has a, the defendant has a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, and you can't hear from Billy unless he chooses that. So is everybody okay with just hearing from one side? Interesting. So we do, we so do not in, exploit that. So in the midst of a cross-examination. right there, Anna. How? Aisha, go ahead. No, no, I was just thinking about Wadir, right? If, if, if you liken the defendant to a kid who isn't telling a parent, right, one thing or the other as to what has happened, in some ways I think that kind of infers some level of guilt or culpability or uh -huh. knowledge, right? Um, it's just an interesting dynamic, uh, but I overthink things sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or it's just a, you know, a very clever strategy. Is it, I think it is. I think it's a real life scenario that people can put themselves in because a lot of our jurors have kids and they understand how things would operate in their home and you would never be able to tell a kid at home, you can't tell me what happened. So I think it's I hear a you. real life. No, I hear you. So in the midst of a cross-examination though, you're, you know, and, and a witness is taking the fifth. So a witness taking the fifth is a little different than the defendant, or, or a defendant's constitutional right. Well, mm -hmm. it's the same protection. Uh, we do advise witnesses from time to time if we feel that their testimony could incriminate them for a future crime or a past crime. Um, a lot of times you'll see this in cases where a witness has changed stories midstream, uh, where the story initially to the police was one, two, and three, and now they've come to day of trial, and now it's going to be six, seven, and eight. The stories don't match. One of them isn't true, so we'll advise a witness of their Fifth Amendment rights to remain silent because they could be facing either a false police report charge or a felony perjury charge. And, and Ian Freeman, go ahead. Uh, and that's where I, as the defense lawyer, completely do something totally different than what I just preached, and I'll get up there and I will take the, uh, the approach that only the guilty uh, use the Fifth Amendment <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and just you know talk about that shield and he must be guilty and so forth. So. It, uh, it, it goes both ways, right? Louis Chayton, you, you seemed like you were leaning in earlier, like you wanted to ask Anna a question. Oh, no, I, I wasn't. You're I just mean, kidding. If you're, you're going to ask, I, I, I was going to plead the fifth if you're going to ask me <laughs> on the discrimination <laughs> clause. So. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Um, the, the other aspect of the, of the Fifth Amendment, I know we'll get back to uh, self-incrimination questions in the second half of the program, but the, the other aspect of, um, of the Fifth Amendment has to do with the grand jury. And I think not, not a lot of people realize that the grand jury is actually a, a constitutional right. It's, it's there, right there in the, in the Bill of Rights. Um, Anna Woods and Aisha Bahardway, you are the, um, as uh, a prosecuting attorney, currently an assistant prosecuting attorney and a former assistant prosecuting attorney, um, you are the, you two have some experience in this matter. Um, it, I, I mean, it's a secret proceeding, and if you haven't sat on a grand jury, if you haven't been, um, or if you haven't been the prosecutor in those cases, I mean, you have no idea what's actually going on. So our grand juries are secret, and, but it is a lower standard of proof. So a normal criminal case, your standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. And to render a verdict, you have to get 
all the evidence there. Now at a grand jury proceeding, it's more informal and a much lower standard of proof. It's probable cause. Is it more likely that something happened than did not? And grand jurors get to ask questions of the witnesses and they get to make the ultimate decision in secret without even the prosecutor being in the room when the decisions are granted. Whether an indictment is rendered or the case is what's called no billed and dismissed at the grand jury. Aisha Bell Hardway, our, um, our grand jury system in Cuyahoga County has been um, uh, come in for a lot of criticism in recent years. Um, does it need reform and what kind of reform does it need? So, so I wasn't, um, when I was in the prosecutor's office, I was not assigned to the grand jury. Um, okay. Everything that I have learned about the grand jury has been since I've been teaching at the law school um, and conversations with folks who have either served um, as grand jurors, um, no details, but just general structure uh, things. And um, then of course, what I've researched and studied. And you know there has been a lot of concern um, around the secrecy of the process, if the prosecutors and what role they're playing in the process. In the process, there has been criticism across the country. You all have heard this, right? You can indict a ham sandwich if the prosecutor so uh, desires to. Um, and I think Cuyahoga County has not been immune uh, to that criticism. Um, what we saw um, after the killing of Tamir Rice and kind of the very public. A rollout of some of the details of what was happening in the grand jury, I think only uh, shine a light even more so uh, as to what's happening there and raised more questions, um, which were shot down very, very quickly by uh, the judge who was asked for transcripts time and time again. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ian Friedman is a defense attorney. What concerns do you have about the state of the grand jury in Cuyahoga County? I, mean, I have great concerns, but I, I don't think this is limited to Cuyahoga County. I mean, right. Everywhere I practice, you know, Anna is exactly right. It's a lower standard, um, and and the being able to indict a ham sandwich, I take very seriously because uh, how many, you know, when someone's indicted, it, it's a trauma what they're going through. Absolutely, and I think that um, without being able to question the evidence on the front end, uh, I think it's it's unfair. I think that, um, you know. We try to get the transcripts often to use them in, in trial. It's exceptionally difficult. Uh, it's just, it's really tough. Those who I've spoken to in the grand jury, uh, in the grand juries, you know, say, yeah, we were asked to kind of go through it. You're given only the, the evidence of the crimes. You have to remember that the defendant is not allowed to be there. The defendant doesn't give his side of it. Exculpatory evidence, that which would tend to exonerate you, is not presented. So, of course. The ham sandwiches, if you're simply told everything bad, of course there's gonna be a crime. My feeling, if you're gonna put it in, put it all in and let them make a decision. Keep the same standard, fine, but let both sides really be heard because if all you hear is the allegation. But at which point you're basically having a trial with a lower standard of evidence. It's not even really a trial because a trial, inherent in a trial, is the questioning and the testing of the evidence. This is just simply hearing and maybe testing the allegations and, and to me, there, there's inherently a lot of unfairness in that process. So I, I do have a question ahead. about this, and so the question is, so what's the alternative? Because unless I'm mistaken, it's a state court. You don't even have to have a grand jury. So, there so you is could a have lesser, lesser protect, uh, you had a procedure that's less protective of defendant rights than grand juries. Grand juries is, are sort of the gold standard of indictments. Because they're a jury of citizens. 
Go ahead, Anna Woods. So there is an option to go by way of information, which you are provided a, at least initial packet of discovery where you know the charges, you will know your witnesses, and you get the option to know what is going in front, and you can waive your grand jury presentation, and it is open ahead of time. Yeah, I think in theory, as you said, Louis, it's, it's the kind of the gold standard, the ideal standard, and it is in place to protect the accused. I, I fully get that. I think it's, it's a bigger thing, and I think it goes to the person who's presenting to the grand jury mm -hmm. and what their decisions are. Mm -hmm. Because they also, and Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, just because you have probable cause on a case doesn't mean that you are fulfilling your obligation as a prosecutor to bring that case if you didn't think you could also prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, right? I, would, I would agree. Most of our cases, we try to screen well in the beginning to make sure that it will hold up at trial. And, and I mean, look, Anna's a good prosecutor, okay? So I'm carving you out of this, but I have seen cases go through uh, that there's no way they ever should have been brought into a courtroom. But they, anything can get by the grand jury process if you want it to. That's, that's the thing. So I think it's the way it's presented, the intention, and maybe the failure to see kind of the long-term uh, you know, ultimate question. Can this be proven beyond a reasonable doubt? Ian Friedman is with uh, Friedman and Nemechek. Aisha Hardaway with Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Anna Woods with the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. And Louis Chaitin is a partner at Jones Day. I'm Dan Malthrop. This is Constitution Ale. And we're so glad to have you here. We're going to do audience questions now. Um, Alyssa Janarakis from, our, from the City Club staff is uh, roaming with, uh, with a microphone. And whoever's got a question, raise your hand. And we've got one over there. And Alyssa will work her way over to you. So let's get our first question. Our first question, please. Thanks for being here and uh, presenting. It was very interesting. My question is about the self-incrimination uh, clause, and specifically for you, Ian, why is it, knowing the presumption that all of us in this room think that when someone takes the fifth, they're guilty, why is it that so many defense attorneys advise their clients not to take the stand, knowing that the jurors are going to think that they're guilty when they don't take the stand? Sure. So it's a good question. And I think that you are asking for trouble uh, if you're not putting someone on the stand and you don't address it ahead of time. So I think it's incumbent upon an effective defense lawyer to address it. And I personally, you know, you know Anna kind of gave her example of, of what she does. I like to just do an exercise with the jury to talk about how difficult it is to prove a negative. If you didn't do something, how do you prove that? And all of a sudden they start to realize, well, yeah, wait a second. And then they also, already spoke by way of their entering a not guilty plea. By the time we're done with this exercise selecting the jury, the goal, which is to kind of teach them how to use the other brain, and by that I mean we have two different brains. We have the brain that we woke up with this morning when we got dressed, we made breakfast, took the kids to school, and then the brain when you come to the, to the courthouse where we think differently. We, we resolve disputes differently, right? Anna brought up, we'd certainly never do it in the morning beyond a reasonable doubt, we do it here. I think it's just a, a, an education that there's nothing more that someone can do except to say, I didn't do it. I've tried a lot of cases over the years. I can count on one hand the number of times I've put somebody on the stand. Um, you know, there's no reason to put them up there simply to say again, I didn't do it, subject them to a good prosecutor okay. who's going to beat them up over and over. And it's amazing how jurors today 
I don't know why it is, maybe they're watching all the television and so forth, they all believe that they are qualified to read every nonverbal indication there is there. They say, well, if I was accused of this, I would have done it differently. That person looked down that way. Did you hear how her voice went up? All of these things, and you're sitting there. I've talked to the juries afterwards. It's amazing what they see that you cannot anticipate. And so if we let them know that the best you can do is say, I didn't do it, and as a matter of fact, they already said that, you eliminate that, that expectation. That's the way I handle it. Next question. Um, as a former county grand jury foreman, I'd like to note for the record that of the 1,497 felony indictments I signed, only five were ham sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> but <coughs> my, my question goes to the double jeopardy clause. Um, if it's struck down across the board, the, the dual sovereignty exception is struck down across the board, won't that apply to country-to-country -country decisions as well? And will it not allow a Pakistani court to acquit or allow a minimal sentence to a terrorist that we would execute? So that was a um, topic of quite a bit of discussion at the, at the oral argument in the who, case. Who asked the, who asked the question at the, at the Supreme Court? Uh, so it was uh, Justice Alito primarily um, All right. was, was on that issue. His so, inner Justice um, Alito. Yeah, so, so the, answer is, the answer is not necessarily. So it, the, the historical basis of the rule was country to country. It's based on primarily on a case where uh, someone was acquitted of murder in the 17th century in Spain, and then the King of England tried to prosecute him, and the King's Bench, the court, says you can't do this because of double jeopardy principles. And our argument is if that applied between two countries that are foreign to one another, how much more so should that rule apply when we are all part of one nation? And there's no doubt that the federal government respects the jurisdiction of the state of Alabama to sentence Mr. Gamble, and it should respect that, that, that sentence and not re-prosecute him because they don't think it's long enough. If you get into the country or country issue, it gets a little complicated, sort of beyond the scope of this, but I can tell you it depends on whether the United States wants to recognize the competent jurisdiction of that other country, whether it's a sham prosecution. You wouldn't, if it were like, you know, Afghanistan prosecuting a, a terrorist to acquit him so that he couldn't be prosecuted in the U.S., there's no way the U.S. would recognize that prosecution. But one of the risks with your argument, getting back to the state versus the federal government, is that you know the state of California could um, could preemptively you know charge people with really simple misdemeanors on pot offenses, on marijuana offenses, to preclude the federal government from charging them in federal court. Yeah, that and that that's an issue that has arisen and. Um, the reality is that the federal government, if it wants to take control of things, can. In 99.99% of cases, the federal government, as Anna was referring to, the federal government and the state governments are cooperating. Mm -hmm. They know about their prosecutions. They're deciding who wants to prosecute, and states are deferring to the federal government or the, their joint task force. There are 271 DEA joint task force in this country operating right now, and that's just one one federal agency. So mm -hmm. there's an extensive cooperation. If you really had a situation where a state were trying to undermine something that was a legitimate area, and we can all debate whether that's a legitimate area of federal prosecution, but a legitimate area of federal prosecution, Congress can step in and preempt state law. Next question. Okay, thank you. I'm glad that the uh, 
they do review prior supreme court rulings i'm a retired public employee and i like the idea of janice and abode but my question is is the expansion of double jeopardy due to the federal government federalizing so many more state crimes who wants to take it so that I, I could just quickly say that that was yes the the federal the federal criminal law has become has expanded massively over the last 50 to 75 years um, such that you, you, there are they've stopped trying to count the number of federal crimes. No one really knows. They're, the last time they tried, it was 4,000 statutes in hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations, all of which can be crimes. This was a subject of discussion in uh, many of the amicus briefs filed in the case, is uh, the, the opportunity for abuse that exists today that didn't exist at the time that this separate sovereign's exception was first created, where the federal prosecutions and state prosecutions were not overlapping and were completely separate. Anna Woods, are there moments when you find that, the, that in fact, the, the, your federal law enforcement partners do seem to be over-criminalizing things? I'm not asking you to criticize your federal law enforcement partners. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand the dynamics here. Arlen, I've worked with them limitedly, mm -hmm. so I don't know that I can really answer the question you're asking. In my experience, they have had, it's been usually firearms cases, and I've not noticed it, but again, my experience with the federal prosecution has been quite limited. Mm -hmm. Ian Friedman, I'm sure you'd like to see a, a reduction in the overcriminalization by federal law enforcement. I would. I mean, I do see lots of cases, you know, the 926 case with the, the four with the guns. Um, you know, I see people convicted, and then it goes to federal. And I ask how it gets there, and these task forces go, and they just start going through the paperwork, uh, and they start pulling them, and, you know, someone's been acclimated back to the community and so forth. Sure, I'd love to see it. That's what the task forces are actually doing? Uh, I, yes. Just claim, not all of them. I mean, not, not all. Mm -hmm. but, but sure, they come down, they look through it, prosecutor's office, we end up with federal prosecutions for something that's already been prosecuted. Wow, so. I did not know that. The idea of a federal task force always sounds like a, you know, a, a group of law enforcement partners getting together and like combing the streets and finding well, the bad guys. That's part of it, that, yeah. that's what I'm saying. It's not a broad sweep, but that's certainly part of it. Mm -hmm. so. Wow, awesome, next question. So, Lewis, uh, tell us about Chief Justice Roberts and uh, his reaction to your case. Do, do you think, uh, and the rest of the panel, is there a metamorphosis going on, uh, going on here? Did he, did he like sidle up a little bit to the left side? Uh, you know, body language, just tell us. Well, you know, they don't actually sit left, right on ideological <laughs> ground, so it's a little hard to tell where the sidling's happening. He sits in the middle though, right? He definitely sits in the middle. And, um, okay. Right. So uh, it, it's 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 really hard to tell, honestly. Um, um, I I don't know. I I couldn't predict where he is, and I I don't think I could generalize beyond this case about anything that anyone asked at the case. At the could you argument. could you talk about the dynamics with the because this isn't a traditional left-right kind of argument um, that so Roberts isn't if if Thomas and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are aligned on this Thomas isn't going to or I mean uh, uh, Justice Roberts Chief Justice Roberts isn't going to be the swing vote he's not going to be the new Kennedy this time 
Um, how do the how do you think the justices, or, or what did you get from their questions? Like I know that that you know there are lots of journalists and bloggers who are trying to parse those questions and to try to understand what people care about. And you've referred to uh, Justice Kagan earlier and her um, her focus on stare decisis. But what did, what did you hear from the others? It's um, so first of all, I, I would not read too much into the questions that are asked at oral argument. I, I mean, it's something the sort of media does that you look at the numbers of questions that are asked and who's uh -huh. asking them and try to try to read the tea leaves and decide how the and determine how the case can be decided. It's that's a oh, hold on just a second, Lewis. I feel like we should footnote this moment because the other thing that you don't know about Lewis is that he used to clerk uh, uh, on the Supreme Court. So, well, and it's interesting. So the justice I clerked for is Justice Scalia, and Justice Scalia was involved in a number of opinions in the area of criminal law like this, where you would think Justice Scalia, conservative, must, be, must not be pro-criminal defense rights, but in the area of jury trial rights or the confrontation clause, very much so. Maybe the left, I'm using air quotes now, leftmost member of the court on some of these issues because his originalism led him to results that were um, criminal defendant friendly. And I, so it's a, it's a similar dynamic. The case has a similar dynamic. Sadly for me, Justice Scalia is not on the court um, to, that would have been fun. Um, he would have been very a, proud it's of similar, you. It's a similar dynamic where you have um, justices who are maybe looking at it more from a policy or fairness perspective and are more pro-criminal defense rights aligning with, we hope, justices who are more originalist. Was there a question that they peppered you with that just totally caught you off guard or that you remember as being like, whoa, that was, that was a big deal? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, How about I, the I mean, part where you said it just doesn't matter? What question was that? You kept getting that question over and over again. And, and I can't remember what it was, but at some point you, at some point you said, it just doesn't matter. And I thought, I don't know how to teach my students how to do that. So, you know? so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's a bold uh, move, by the way. This is not. This is not say, So, one of the things. I mean, now, now we're digressing a little bit. But one Sorry. of the things about so, about oral arguments is that you use one percent or a tenth of a percent, and they everyone at this table has had this experience of what you prepare for. That's right. Right. You. So, I'm not saying that. Oh, I so brilliant, I knew everything they were going to ask you. It's just you work really hard to prepare for these things. And then you go in, and it's a little bit frustrating because you know what? You're pretty much going to get the questions you're expecting to get. Um, you know, they may be in a different form. There are a few occasional surprises. Um, but for the most part, that's, that's part of the game. Mm -hmm. Going prepared. Do you remember what, who you told it doesn't matter? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, some enterprising audience member is going to yes. go to the transcript. Um, next question. I'm just curious, someone made reference to an amicus brief that was filed halfway through that I guess raised some questions or got a lot of interest and who was that filed by or was it just a so group of I, different I think I can answer that one. Yeah, you got that one. Lewis. It wasn't filed halfway through. It was filed like with all the other amicus briefs in support of our position, including the ACLU and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and all the people you'd expect to file in, amicus briefs on this. One of the amicus briefs was filed by Senator Orrin Hatch. The Atlantic wrote an article about that because Senator Orrin Hatch was a member of the Judiciary Committee and at the time was working on the Kavanaugh nomination. And they, the, the author of this Atlantic article, 
seemed to suggest that this was somehow suspicious and that got picked up on Twitter. The reality is Senator Orrin Hatch has been a longtime critic of the over-criminalization of federal law. And this brief is one of a number he's filed over the years on this particular issue. So there is nothing the least bit suspicious about it, but it's kind of the reaction this uh, this case has gotten on social and media. It's, yeah, and it's, I think, indicative of the, the moment that we live in and the, the factors at play. Other questions? A question about the uh, self-incrimination part of the um, discussion. Uh, so for Ian, you mentioned that there in your career have been a handful of cases where you did advise your client to testify at trial. And I'm wondering what considerations would make you actually make that recommendation? And in a world where at least sometimes it does make sense, how do you convince people that uh, silence is not mm. somehow indicative of guilt? That's a good question. So that's the question that, you know, of course we think about it on day one when we start kind of gauging our clients to see how do we think that they would um, do on the stand. Uh, and it's a very long process. Usually that decision's not made until it could be just the night before trial. It really depends on how trial's going. If there's an absolute need, um, you feel that without this person getting up there, um, you know, they don't stand a good chance. It kind of speaks for itself, like you'll just know it. Sometimes situations of self-defense where you may have an affirmative defense to something, yes, I did it, here's why. Okay, we, we would have to put somebody on. Um, so when there is a circumstance that needs an explanation, and with that explanation, the jury will be able to see it, hopefully your way, but it can only come from that defendant. That's what it would be. Um, so, but again, you can't really make that decision. And, and it's tough because, you know, when we talk about the perfect world, you also think that you know you're gonna have a prosecutor most times that's done this a thousand times before. They're very good at it. But the person who's taking the stand is gonna be absolutely terrified. And, and it's very easy to get someone on the stand um, and trick them up every which way. Defense lawyer can do it to someone, a witness. Prosecutors can do it. This is where we live. This is their first time there. So it's a very difficult decision. I would not put them on there unless I absolutely had to. And if I knew that I had to, um, you know, like, like I said, well, before I even know that, we'll get them ready. So I have all of my clients ready to testify. And sometimes I'll put them with, with coaches. Uh, we'll put them through exercises. We'll film them. We'll have them go back and forth. I have them testify sitting in front of a mirror, just going back and forth, just a number of exercises. They may be so ready to testify. They could do it professionally, and I still wouldn't have them on unless I absolutely needed to. So I hope I answered your question. Do we have any other questions? You got a question, Alyssa? No? OK. Um, I wanted to come back to a, a, a final piece that has to do with, with Gamble. Um, but Aisha Bahardaway, you mentioned the implications for uh, sovereignty of uh, Native American tribes. And uh, you sort of mentioned it in passing. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit because it's very, it's a, the federal government obviously has a unique relationship to Native American tribes. Uh, so, so uh, as Lewis mentioned, there were several amici briefs um, filed. Um, and they kind of 
went in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, one of them was around the fact that for years um, it's been difficult to get meaningful prosecutions and sentences uh, um, on behalf of women who have suffered either domestic violence uh, abuses or sexual crimes um, in, 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 um, in, in, in Indian countries or sovereign nations on, on reservations. And um, as a result of that, there were briefs filed that basically said, if we get rid of this um, separate sovereignty doctor doctrine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? Um, that it will have implications for the rights of victims on, on, on Indian lands. Um, in addition to that, I know that uh, the Thurgood Marshall Center uh, for Civil Rights at, the Howard, at Howard's Law School also filed an amici brief um, that basically said we have, to be we have to tread very lightly here to the extent we're thinking about um, overturning this exception because it could have longstanding implications on the rights of the federal government to pursue um, civil rights um, crimes against individuals, uh, particularly as it relates to police misconduct issues. Um, and so um, those were the things that I kind of brushed over really fast, uh, but were raised by uh, friends of the court, briefs and uh, as friends of the court. This is like really exceptionally complicated in that there are some big yeah. wins for sort of civil rights of, of defendants, yeah. of criminal defendants, but also some very dangerous uh, implications for um, for the rule of law, for you know, for victims of violence, yeah. for the civil rights of, of citizens. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and so, as much as when I first looked at this, I thought, well, of course, right. Um, and I think, of course, it's still the right answer. We want to do something uh, to make sure that double jeopardy actually means something in America as it relates to state and federal crimes. Um, but we need to be careful, I think. So, so th this, this issue, so on the civil rights issue, this issue first arose or, or got a lot of national attention during the trials of the officers who beat Rodney King. Mm -hmm. And there was a debate within the ACLU mm -hmm. about what their position was going to be on this dual sovereignty exception. The idea being that um, it would be good to be able to prosecute um, if, say, an all-white jury were to acquit officers of a beating in violation of someone's civil rights, it would be good to be able to prosecute them federally. And so that, that, that the ACLU ended up on my side of the case. The Howard um, Civil Rights Clinic filed a brief in support of neither side that I think was actually quite helpful for us yeah. because they explained why it is that this that our position is not likely to impact civil rights enforcement in this country. And, and why is and that? As you, um, so th because they have to be the same offense, and same, same offense means they have to have the same element. And so a, a state law crime for assaulting someone with, say, a deadly weapon, and a federal prosecution for depriving someone of their civil rights under the color of law right. intentionally are not the same offense. So you, even if someone's acquitted of the first crime, can try them in federal court right. on, for the second crime, even under my rule. And then the, the, the third issue was the, the, the um, Native American tribes, and that is also an interesting issue and one we could talk about for an hour. Um, <laughs> because, but that's another area where the, the, the prosecutions are, there, there's probably the most cooperation between federal authorities and tribal authorities or federal authorities and local authorities that you'll see in any area. Um, when it comes to, to, to those sorts of crimes. And then the, an interesting bit of trivia is that the double jeopardy clause doesn't itself, the constitutional right, 
doesn't actually apply to Native American tribes. Um, so it's a further wrinkle on the issue. But, th but they file a brief opposing us and um, raising some sentencing. issues. Right, for the purposes of sentencing, not for the actual trying of the crime, is that right? No, it, it doesn't apply at all except to the extent Congress wants it to. Got if it. it applies, it applies as a matter of federal statute. Got it. And when you said they filed a brief opposing you, who is they? Uh, it's a number of uh, organizations that advocate for the rights of Native it's Americans. absolutely fascinating. When do we get a decision? Probably June. All right. Well. Louis Chaitin is a partner at Jones Day. He argued and uh, represented uh, um, Terrence Gamble in Gamble versus the United States. Anna Woods is an assistant prosecuting attorney at the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. Ayesha Bell Hardaway, assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, and Ian Friedman, founding partner of uh, Friedman and Nemechek. I want to thank all four of you. Please join me in thanking them, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. This has been another City Club Forum at the Great Lakes Brewing Company. We call it Constitutionale because we uh, talk about the Constitution and drink beer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.